We are up to uh, Sutra 2.29. Do we have any questions or thoughts left over from last week before we go forward? I mean, Patanjali is primarily known for the um, yamas and the niyamas and the eight-limbed path of Patanjali. You know, this book, as we've gone this far in this book, and we're finally up to what most people pull out of this book and call it Patanjali. Um, I I remember there was a yoga conference somewhere, and they did the eight limbs of Patanjali. They did four in the morning and four in the afternoon. (laughs) And you got up to Samadhi by the afternoon. You just, it was a progression. progression. Okay, so 229 is, the eight limbs of yoga are yama, self-denial, niyama, observance, posture, withdrawal of the energy, interiorization of the mind, concentration, meditation, absorption. People, we often think yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, adharana, and dhyana, samadhi. Those are the Sanskrit words. And we're going to go through, but it's going to take us quite a while before we get through all of them. Okay. So, um, Swamiji starts out by emphasizing uh, what he always does when he's talking about Patanjali, this particular sutra, which he's, he discusses this at length in the Raja Yoga course, um, that these are not steps that you master one at a time. That's why, that's why Patanjali calls them the limbs. When you think of the four limbs that you have, you don't think of this as progressive. You think of this as a cooperative effort. And so he wants us to understand that all of these aspects of yoga practice, all work together and there's no, there's no sequence and there's no priority to them. They all have to be in place you know, for the whole centipede to move forward. You might think of it like that. Also because perfection in each of them is only possible when all the others have also been perfected. So we work on everything at the same time. When we get to samadhi, wherever it is in this book, we'll figure out how, how its practical application comes. But it does because everything is directional. And before you have the whole of something, you have parts of it. And so we always have to think in terms of the spiritual path. I was talking to someone this morning about, well, actually something that'll come, actually I'll save it because it'll come in just a minute. Nope, I'll tell this part first. I was talking to someone this morning about an aspect of the spiritual path and I said, well, when Swamiji, that's how Swamiji behaved with us. That's how he always behaved with us. And my friend said, well, I'm not Swami. I said, I know, but the definition of right practice is when you see it done properly. So you need to really know what the right practice looks like. And then even if you're in a less than perfect relationship to that, but you, you do understand what the standard is. And it's, it's, it's a fact that we may not be able to live up to that. And it's one of the more delicate and slightly challenging aspects of the spiritual path is to always be able to say, well, that's how Swami did it, and that's how it's done, and then calmly understand that that's not how I do it, but not feel the necessity either to feel guilty, to become insincere in your practice, or to try to lower the top, you know, try to bring it down. That's what people will do. They, they try to make the hill there standing on the top of the mountain, you know, that this is, you know, that they don't want to have to realize how far we have to go. It's a very, very complicated part of the path, an extremely important one. I've said this many times, but it has to be repeated again and again. You really have to get that one straight because that's a, an incarnation buster. 
if you can't stand in right relationship to the full potential of this path and simultaneously be perfectly comfortable in your own um, present reality, um, that conflict makes it very difficult to progress. Much more difficult to progress than just being where you are. Everybody thinks that where they are is the problem. Not really. Where you are is just where you are. What could you have done about it? It seemed like a good idea at the time. That's how you got here, right? But how you regard that, your attitude about your reality, makes is all the difference between success and failure. So I'll, I'll come to that again in a little bit. But So he talks about these eight stages, which are all eight, eight limbs, which are all simultaneously... Um, developing within us at all times. Swamiji once described the spiritual path as having as a warehouse full of furniture, and it's all lined up on one wall, and you have to move it all to the other wall. <laughs> but you have to just move each piece a couple of inches, and then you drag one a couple of feet. Then you have to go back and pull this one from the wall. And so it's never, it's not tidy. I was actually reflecting on that when I was reading today. And these are, I suppose, the wisdom of years. They feel like the wisdom of years. It's just not tidy. It's not at all tidy. It's just rather a mess. You know, some, th- some days are better than others. Some years are better than others. Some aspects of you are just so together, and some parts of us are so pathetic. And it just, after a while, it, it becomes a cause for amusement rather than despair. Because it's just the way it is. It just never lines up. We have such a simplistic idea when we start. But you just get closer and closer to that inner happiness and the rest of it just kind of roils around you and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't come out the way you think it's going to come out. Uh, that, that's not a very sensible statement, so I won't try to make it one. I'll just leave it right there. The other thing that um, Swamiji emphasizes, which is an important thing for understanding Patanjali, especially when, since most people define him by this sutra and the few that follow, is that um, this is not a practice and this is something that he emphasizes at other places. It's not, like, it's not like he's saying, first you do this, then you do that. What he's describing is, these are the inevitable stages that absolutely everyone will go through. If you are seeking to expand your consciousness, you will have these experiences. You will become uh, consistent in the yamas and the niyamas, even if you've never heard of them. Those virtues um, will begin to become part of your nature. You will become able to concentrate on the inner realities. You will gain mastery over your energy. And you can be a Hindu, you can be a Christian, you can be a Jew, you can be an atheist. But if your consciousness is actually expanding, these are the things that will happen to you. Like everything else that he describes here, he's just explaining it. In other words, um, Master said, self-realization has come to unite all religions, is how he put it. So related to what you were just saying, this idea that it's not a practice per se, but it's the inevitable outcome. Yes. My experience, either in classes having heard the Yamas and the Niyamas or even offering it as a, you know, in a, as a teacher in a class, has been this idea that the Yamas and Niyamas are practices, even asana is a practice and pranayama is a practice, and then sort of the others are the unfolding that results after those practices. That's not how Swami describes it here. I mean, it, of course, you can make a practice of the yamas and niyamas, and you can make a practice of asana, and you can make practice of pranayama, 
But Patanjali doesn't give us practices. Patanjali right. merely describes them as uh, these, are, these are what you're going to experience. So, and that sounds perfectly good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get my mind around that in a way of sort of a more um, comprehensive understanding then of, the, of it as a, as a body. Well, the, the, here, here, let me take it from this angle and see if it... The reason Swamiji stresses the point that this is not a practice because if it was a practice, it would be a path. You would be following Patanjali's path. And Swami's trying to say there is no such thing as Patanjali's path. Patanjali describes the path that absolutely everybody who goes will find it. So you can say, having studied, that, that the practices of self-realization, the practices of Kriya Yoga, the practices of Ananda, you know, um, follow what, you know, we, we, we put into practice what Patanjali describes as the natural unfoldment of our consciousness. See, that makes it really interesting um, in, in the sense that we talk the, often that we're all made the same way and you right. know, sort of constructed energetically and physically. Mm-hmm. So this is really fascinating then that this, he literally has, and I've, I've sort of known this, but yeah, I know so precisely. Yeah. You, you, know, you sort of know it, and then when you come right down and look at it, you realize that there's nuances here that, yes, exactly. He's very precise about it. This is what will happen as your consciousness expands. And, and the difference between path and evolution or, you know, sp- specific path and uh, the inevitable expansion of consciousness, you can see that's an important distinction. So should we change the way we teach Raja Yoga here? I think you should be very consistent with what Swami says here. So, yeah, if you've been calling it the path of Patanjali, Swamiji is correcting us. Yeah, if you've been doing it that way, just apologize. Say mea culpa in a really big way and then just go on. Yeah, I've had to go back on more than one occasion and say, well, for the last 15 years I've been misleading you. I'm sorry. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> what it seems a little bit like is like when we teach beginning meditation, we say that you know, the state of your mind influences your breath. You, know, you breathe more agitatedly when your mind is agitated and slower when you're calm, but your breath also influences the state of your mind. Right. And you can sort of come at it from both ends right. to be more effective. It feels kind of like the same thing. Like if it feels appropriate in your life, you can practice one of these yamas or niyamas as you know, like a New Year's resolution or whatever, but also just as you do everything else, you just won't be inclined to lie, for instance. Or, exactly. That's exactly you know, it, right. It, it just gives you two directions to, to come at it from. I mean, many, many spiritual paths and many gurus teach you how to consciously develop within yourself these inevitable stages of spiritual growth, and then that becomes your way of doing it. I mean, many paths don't have the words yamas and niyamas in them, but they're still going to be t- teaching the same thing. They'll have to. Because if they're going to take you to self-realization, they'll have to go there. So yeah, you're picking it up from all these different angles. It makes it richer. This is important because it's part of Master's mission to show, as I was starting to say when Sri Yukteswar made his presence so dramatically known, um, self-realization has come to unite all religions. Self-realization is the unifying reality behind all religions. That's how Master put it. Not that our path is here to get everybody under our umbrella, but the concept of self-realization is how all the religions come together. So the sutras of Patanjali are also one of the ways in which 
if if people would accept it, they would all 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 paths would understand that this is everybody's scripture. And that's how it's more or less understood in India that Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are the basis of all spiritual practice um, because they describe, you know, what the path is and and how you get there. And then your guru tells you, do this mantra, do this exercise, do this particular um, pranayam, you know, practice these moral things like that. And he may draw them right out of here, but nonetheless, then it becomes a specific way to achieve it, way to express it. This seems akin to the idea that um, we talk about that if you had only one technique and you used energization, it would inevitably lead you to the practice of Kriya. That's what Master says. If you were on the desert island and could only have one, he said energization was it. Odd. You would think it would be Kriya, but he said energization. So in a similar fashion, this unfolds. And also, see, what this book is about is this is for the... Himalayan yogi trying to understand his own experiences and he suddenly reads them in here and he recognizes what he's, what he's going through and it gives, um, gives him confidence in his life, in his uh, unfoldment. And so we, we read this and we more or less recognize ourselves and it, it gives us confidence, right? Or at least we see a dim show, you know, if you hold it far enough away and squint like that, it looks like you. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So would you say that this metaphor just popped in my mind that it's sort of like um, Patanjali is describing the features of a car but not necessarily how to build the car? That yeah. you have no, all the that's pieces. actually right. He's describing, he's describing what, it, what it looks like. It's not to it but what it looks like when you yeah. have it. Exactly. And, so, and then your guru tells you how to get there. Yeah, that would be the way to say it. Yes, yeah, so... So what is the path of self-realization? What is the path of self-realization? Yeah, what, what, if... Let's see. The path of self-realization is all of life. You know, this then is the purpose of everything created, ever-increasing awareness, and, I mean, it's in the festival of light. You know, all the, everything that's created, and with this creation, the dawn of self-awareness, passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into perfect bliss. And so all of life is the path of self-realization because that's what every single soul is doing here. But you become consciously on the path of self-realization when you recognize its potential and ideally, as Krishna says, become a yogi, which is you begin to work with... To be a yogi is to work with your energy as it is, and to begin to redirect it by a conscious uh, act of will. And that's how, that's how uh, Swamiji defines, it's probably in the other book, the, the Gita, but that's how Swami defines, explains Krishna's remark to Arjuna, be thou a yogi. And what he's saying is, what that means is, yoga is the science of, well, here we are, and this is what we're dealing with, and so let's start working from where we stand toward where we're going. And which is, I'm too timid, I need to be more bold. I'm too angry, I need to be more gentle. You know, I'm too intellectual, I need to develop more heart. I'm too spaced out with my feelings, I need a stronger mind. I mean, we just start standing where we are, and we start 
developing ourselves in such a way that our consciousness expands, our sympathies expand. Is that here? No, I keep, I'm doing the Gita and, and this one at the same time, and now they're beginning to cross in my mind. But that was in the first chapter of the Gita, Swami talking about the sign of spiritual growth, increasing joy and freedom, and an expansion of consciousness, which is to say an understanding of a greater reality than just the senses perceive, um, a greater sympathy with all sentient beings, and an ever-increasing calmness. Okay? And that's, that's the path that we're following, and that's where we're going. Yeah. And, and we, we have techniques that we use mm-hmm. to help us out. Yes, and, so, and one of the main techniques you use is a guru, because one of the big problems is that we are not able to perceive ourselves accurately or objectively. So the intuitive presence of a guru is, is absolutely fundamental to self-realization. So when you really get serious, the guru comes to you. And that's, that's just way up there. And that was before Swami even mentioned chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gita. <laughs> he says, you need a guru because the mind itself can't figure it out. I understand what you mean about not worrying about it. You just just try and do some of the, the techniques, be very sincere about it, and it's going to happen. Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> it's really actually quite amazing. It's, yeah. it's not nearly as... It's both much more difficult and not nearly as difficult as we think. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Today my mind was really spinning on that kind of... Both of those things were just spinning in my head. I couldn't really... They, they didn't stop. They never stopped. I just kept watching them spin. Wow, this is so much easier and so much more impossible than we thought. You know? <laughs> I just rode that merry-go-round without ever being able to grab the brass ring today. Yeah. It's all about just freedom and joy in the end, in the middle and in the beginning. But, of course, you have to put out effort to get there. And when we start in on the yamas and the niyamas, we'll talk about some of that. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts? These are very important, doesn't we? We're in no hurry. Okay. So, sutra number 230. The yamas, <coughs> which are... <clears throat> the things which are self-denial, we, we deny ourselves these expressions. We restrain. The yamas consist of non-harmfulness, which could be called harmlessness, non-deceit, truthfulness, non-covetous, non-covetousness, continence, and non-attachment. Okay, those are the yamas. We've all, or most of us, if we've studied Raja Yoga, we've heard these five qualities, and the reason it's called the things that we, re, we, we restrain, we deny ourselves the opportunity to express, is that if we don't express the wrong energy, the right energy will be revealed. We don't have to create the right expression. We just have to not get confused and, and uh, follow the wrong expression. So he talks about five attitudes to avoid and five attitudes to cultivate the do's and the don'ts of right action. Um, so then he starts right in with ahimsha, which is a word that we all have heard before, which he calls non-harmfulness. So here are the, some basic points that we need to study now about ahimsha. Um, 
Swamiji begins by understanding how deeply and profoundly this is an inner attitude because it is simply impossible, as we all know in this world, to really never injure anything. We're just injuring all the time. Even being vegetarian, Swami points out the, the carrot has a living reality and you pull it out of the ground and you disturb its happy incarnation and you throw it in boiling water and you chew it up and make it you. And so in a very real sense, you've interrupted another life in order to sustain your own. Of course, it could easily be argued that the carrot enjoys being consumed by you because that's why he's there. He's there to help us. Um, Swamiji makes a very important point in the study of Ahimsa, which um, has to be understood. And um, I, I know that in this room there's not a lot of argument against this, but it still comes up a lot, which is that man is the highest species and the life of man is to preserve the life of, of man, of humankind, is more important than to preserve the life of less evolved creatures. Because a human body is inherently of greater value because a human body has the refinement of its nervous system to be able to perceive infinity. That's how Master explains it. And that's what makes us higher beings. Not because we behave in such a swell manner, because it's easily arguable that many other creatures behave a whole lot better than we do. It's not uh, what man as a civilization does. It's what the individual potential of each human being is. You have odd stories of animals who are also evolved. In Ramana Maharshi's ashram, there is a Mahasamadhi Mandir to a cow, I believe also to a deer, and to a crow. And who knows? I, I don't understand. And they say that Lahiri Mahashaya was, quote, working on a technique where animals could be liberated directly without having to go through the human stage. So, I, you know, you just hear things like that, and you're, I don't have any place to put them in my mind. So I'll just repeat back to you what Master said, that the human being is the highest, um, has the highest potential, and therefore it's all right if other Creatures have to be sacrificed to preserve the life of a human. He said, for example, as Swami uses as an example, if a tiger is about to eat you, you can shoot the tiger. And he even goes so far as to say, if a human being is coming in to kill a lot of other people, you can kill that human being in order to preserve the life of others. This is a direct reference to something that Gandhi was asked. If somebody came to your village and started shooting everyone, you know, would that be enough for you to break your ahimsa? And he said, no, I would have him shoot me first. Swami's response to that, how would that help? You know, and for, for Gandhi, perhaps it was the right thing to do. But Swamiji specifically answers that very same question, and he does it deliberately. He answers it differently. You should stop that man from hurting the others. Because he's also trying to explain to us that it's not only about action, it's very much about intention. And then he goes on with other examples that come closer to home because, you know, if we're about to be eaten by a tiger, we'd probably be really glad if somebody shot it. And if we're being attacked by a madman with a gun, we'd probably be really glad if somebody took that man down. We have an instinctive desire to keep our bodies, but that's, that's the right thing, that's the right way to feel. When Happy Winningham, who had AIDS, and in order for her to stay in her body, she had to take lots of drugs, and it was, as she said, it was like having a continual case of the bad flu is how she described her life for quite a, a few years. But she sort of, she had no fear of death and she asked Swamiji, 
you know, how long do I have to keep doing this? At what point can I just say, it's over? And he said, you, you should try to keep your body as long as it's spiritually useful to you. Which is to say, as long as you feel that you can remember God, do Kriya if possible, but even past the point of being able to do Kriya, you may still feel that it's useful to you. That you're um, surrendering more deeply, that you're understanding the divine truths more deeply. He said, otherwise, you give it up, you have to go into the astral world for a time, and then you have to come and you have to be a baby and you have to just go through all that stuff that babies have to go through and little children and it's just a mess just to get you all the way back to the point you are now. So you don't want to give it up lightly. Now, that's that side of it. But the other side of harmlessness and ahimsa is that it can very easily slip over into either indifference or... Um, an excuse for cowardice. And thats it's an extremely subtle and important point to mention. Now, Swamiji gives an example of Alfonso X, his father Ferdinand, and then Alfonso's successor, Sancho, which if you, only, if you know about Swami's past lives, this becomes more relevant. Otherwise, it's like, it's not example exactly the first example you think of. Oh, yes, like Alfonso X, Ferdinand, and Sancho. I mean, like, who knows about them? But Swamiji described how there was this um, uh, incursion into Spain by the Moors, who were the Muslims at that time. Moors is the, an easier word because that's what they were called at the time. And it was, they were moving in and forcing conversion. They were, they were trying to, to blot out Christianity and impose upon that part of the world, and this was Spain, um, that teaching instead. And Master incarnated as, as Ferdinand, uh, Ferdinand, I don't know what Ferdinand the number, but as, as King Ferdinand of Spain, specifically to stand against the incursion of the Moors and to maintain Spain as a Catholic Christian country. And, of course, we've had this long discussion about uh, when we talk about William, and if you've read uh, Two Souls, Four Lives, which if you haven't, you really ought to because it's such a good read, about how Master was very dedicated when Master was William the Conqueror and when Kriyananda was his son Henry. They were very dedicated to the Catholic Church. And Sri Teshwar incarnated uh, to be Lanfranc, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, Rajasi incarnated to be Anselm, and he also became the Archbishop afterwards. They were, they were big figures in the Catholic Church. Master went to Mass. He was very dedicated. Master as William. So was Henry. They built monasteries. And from our perspective, we think we have a very different attitude toward the Catholic Church. I mean, we meaning, I don't mean the whole world because many people are still quite dedicated to it. But it, in the context of self-realization, where we're sitting in what used to be a Catholic Church, that we've now gleefully taken over and converted into a church of self-realization, um, it's not so obvious. And Swamiji, speaking about that in the book, um, Two Souls, Four Lives, he explains that um, Christianity is a true path to self-realization. Jesus was a true master, and what he taught was pure self-realization. And at the time, um, there was more truth preserved in the Catholic Church than there was anywhere else. And so a master comes in with a liberated consciousness, but as soon as the master incarnates, his mission is defined 
by the culture, by the civilization, and by the karma of his disciples. And whatever he may know, he has to act it out through the reality in which he is living. And so in that reality, to, to defend, to support, to expand, to strengthen the Catholic Church in England when it was William the Conqueror and in Spain when it was Ferdinand and Alfonso. And they, they needed to fight hard against this invading force that by, by violence wanted to convert everyone. So Swami puts it here, um, let's see, to inflict one, one's beliefs on others is wrong, but to prevent others, even by violence, from inflicting their beliefs on others, this is right because it is necessary. It would be easily arguable that fighting against the Nazis was also, it was simply necessary because that was a, 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 an evil and a violent um, incursion upon human, uh, upon human decency. And it just had to be stopped. No matter how uh, corrupt war you might think is, no matter how many subsidiary bad plots were in there, there was still at the core of it, there was a real evil empire that was trying to move in and take over. Churchill was the one who saw it first and just stood and, you know, put his whole country on the line in a most heroic way. Now here, from our perspective, the way that Swami said when he was in Spain, a guide was talking to them, well, you know, Ferdinand and Alfonso, they fought against the Moors, but Sancho, who came after, was more tolerant, was the word that they used. Because from our point of view, when we're not being invaded by someone who's going to take away our right to come into this temple and worship the way we want to and kill us if we don't convert, we can just sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's the, they have their way, we have ours. But Swamiji, who was very conscious of that, and it was a matter of personal concern to him, because at the end of that incarnation, the succession was a mess. It's sort of like something he had to face uh, again. He faced it in Henry also. And, it, and the, his immediate successor um, essentially gave back a great deal of what Ferd, Ferdinand had, uh, and Alfonso had fought so hard to gain. But then the one who came after that took, it, took a strong tance, stance again. Now, this gets really... Um, uh, this gets really complicated, and we have to really keep this one straight. Let's see. Um, he says, you know, of course, he says the battle of Kurukshetra is symbolic of the inner war, that we're, we're fighting against our, our right, right and wrong attitudes. But we must be firm in our principles and not allow anyone to weaken them with such pleas as let us be tolerant. That's what I, that's what I was wanting to say. And I went through this, I, um, this is in the book that's just about to come out, but when I was in, when we were in Los Angeles in 2002, and we were standing up to SRF and publicizing the SRF lawsuit to the members of SRF who did not know about it, we, we demonstrated at their convocation. And we had a room at the Biltmore and we had a lot of relics of Master, and we had a, a videotape of Master for sale, which drew a lot of people in there. And this one man, who was a former member of Ananda, who'd been, who was actually instrumental in creating a great deal of that lawsuit. You know, many of you know who he is. I won't say his name. It's, I, I enjoy never mentioning his name. 
But somebody found him somewhere, and all of a sudden he's brought up to the room where I am. And he starts in, and his wife is with him, and they start in about, you know, it's time to put the past behind us. It's time for healing, is what he said. I said, do you repudiate what you did? You know, do you realize how much damage you caused to so many people? Are you going to try to uh, apologize for that, make reparations to, to say that that's not who I am anymore? And there was this long silence. And then the, the wife said, you know, he said, I'm sorry that people were hurt. That's how he put it. And I said, oh, that's, you know, that's nothing. That is so carefully crafted. And, you know, it's not, and he didn't even say, I'm sorry, people were hurt. Because he didn't say, I'm sorry. It was unfortunate or something like that that people were heard. The exact words escape me at the moment, although I do know them. There was no sorry in there. It was just unfortunate that people were hurt or something like that. And I just said, you know, don't try to blackmail me with this sort of namby-pamby talk. If you don't, if you don't stand, a, stand up and say I was wrong and, I, and I'm never going to do this again and what can I do to make it right, I said, just get out of here which he did, finally. It was like, I just wasn't going to hear it. There was no, uh, it was just trying to, let's be tolerant. And a lot of times people will use that on you one way or another. You know, afterwards there was a little bit of discussion. I wrote Swami all that had happened. He just said, good for you. You know, it was true. This was not, this was just, oh, I know what I said. I said it would be entirely irresponsible of me to allow you back into Ananda in any way unless you have totally changed and repudiated and will make reparations for what you did. Otherwise, why would I invite you in? Am I not an idiot? And so we, we have to really realize that sometimes you just have to stand up. Now, I don't, I don't bear the man ill. You know, I think God will take care of it. I don't have to take care of it. You know, it's just, it's not a personal issue. It's not like anything I, that I care in that respect. It's just not right. And so... A lot of times people will use words that are, are meant to make you feel like you're the one who's at fault when actually it's just not true. This is just a challenge to just say, I'm sorry, I'm just going to stand up to this. I'm not going to change. Or else it, people will use words to cover cowardice. And that's the only word for it. Oh, we really shouldn't be at odds with anyone. We should all practice ahimsa after all. No, sometimes we should practice the hymnsha in our hearts and we should stand absolutely firm where we are. And these are, these are principles that are very important to me. I think in past lives I've had to fight hard to come to them. So I, I, I go there. But it's really how you feel inside. I, in the SRF lawsuit, as an example, I've, I was on the front line fighting a great deal of the time. I mean, standing up for Ananda and writing letters and doing all sorts of things. But it was odd in many ways, I had more sympathy for the board of directors than many other people did. I don't know. I could always just look at them and just see how they got there. I wasn't going to cooperate with them at all. But I could, just, I could see how they got there. I didn't, really have, I didn't have any personal issue there. Just wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I disliked them. Well, I do dislike them, but I disliked them in the sense that I didn't find their energy attractive. But it was fine. And that's, that's the line we have to walk. When I had to 
struggled to try to make Ananda California City and worked on that for a year and a half and then Swami just closed the project down in five minutes and I was in mid-step like that. It was very interesting to see where, you know, where the energy really was in me because it, that was extremely contentious and, and was made very personal by some of the people. I mean, I literally got death threats. I never took them seriously. I, it just seemed too comical for me to think that that was real. But it did actually happen. I mean, that was kind of the level that things were going on. But as soon as Swami stopped the project, I was fine. There was a little bit in my heart. And what it was, was I wanted them to lose. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like the triumph. And then even that, like, who cares? And that's how we have to be. And Swamiji with SRF, for example, he was always that way. He was amazing. He was very, very, very strong. And he was forthright and, and intense sometimes in the way he expressed things. But there were principles at stake, and those principles could not be violated. And the, he, above all, recognized the power of the force against us. And he knew that no little, oh, let's be friends was going to work. He had to meet it with exactly the same energy that it came to him. Actually, there was an, there was an interesting um, addition to that. When, when the verdict in the, in the defamation case here, which was the sexual harassment suit, when that verdict came down, it came down on a Friday, Swami, Swami wanted us to appear on Monday morning outside the courtroom en masse. He wanted everybody in all the United States to fly to Redwood City and stand there and protest that verdict. We just, I, all I can say is we weren't able to do it. You know, there was just in the collective will to respond like that just wasn't there. And so the opportunity passed. And the lawyers were really thought it was crazy and there was a whole bunch of other things. So we just didn't do it. And, you know, time went by and we sort of went through it. And there was a, a feeling in our sangha of... Um, we were just bent over. It's the only word I can think of. We were just bent over. And it just went on and on. Even though the whole struggle for the moment was over, we were still bent over. And finally, it just sort of came to us that whenever there was a negative assault against Swamiji, whether it was through the courts or through anything else, he always responded. He didn't just say, oh, it's fine. It'll just go away. He always responded. He wrote a letter. He did some creative initiative, he stood up to it, he gathered people together. He never just let the negative energy just swirl. He always countered it. And I realized that we had not countered it. Swami had invited us to counter it, and I often think, wow, I wonder what would have happened if we had. But it's just like we weren't able to, so we didn't. But we then, we went and did. <laughs> Our little community here, went and stood outside the courthouse at an appropriate day and we stood up for who we are and we communicated in various other ways, very positive energy and it's really like the cloud lifted. It was extremely real that if, you, if you're confronted with something that's not dharmic, that's really wrong and you don't give back your, your positive light in whatever way you can, but with a clean heart, because if you hate or are angry or um, any of those things, then it won't work for you. But with a clean heart, if you can stand up for what you're standing up for. When we went to Los Angeles in 2002, 
There's a lot of controversy about whether that was a good idea or not. And Swamiji said he was concerned that we would become angry. I said, Swami, I'm not the slightest bit concerned that we become angry. I said, you underestimate your training of us. You know, I just am totally confident that we won't. And he, he made us promise, though, if, if, if anger began to manifest in us, we would, no matter what, we would fold everything up and go home. And so we promised. And, you know, nobody argued. One, one person said at one point they started to get annoyed and then remembered. But it was amazing because it was a very confrontive situation, and yet we were just as cheerful as we could be the whole time. In fact, at one point... I was laughing so hard that I had to hold my little placard up like that. I, you know, it was just sort of like this while we were just doing this demonstration because I was just so tickled by the whole thing. Far from anger, it just didn't even arise. Because we, uh, we were standing for, we were not standing against. And even in war, you're standing for, you're not standing against. It's all the difference in the world, that's, the, that's a himsha of the heart. Now, I think, I think the other kind of ahimsa we all understand, we're just, th- this is the more tricky one. Do we have any questions or comments? Yes, Saranya? I understand what you're saying, and I'm, I think I'm looking at it from a different point of view and want you to kind of respond on this. Um, So if someone uh, is attacking some idea that you have or whatever and they write a scathing letter, what you're saying is you have to stand up against it. But um, then what happens to what Jesus says of if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek? Well, if if somebody writes you a scathing letter, you don't have to answer every scathing letter that comes. I mean, if, if people write you scathing letters, you can either ignore them or say nothing. But you can't, if you are, you can't cower in fear in front of that. If, you, if you're perfectly at peace with it and neither, not angry nor, nor afraid, then you can then make your decision as to what is right. And sometimes you respond and oftentimes you don't because it's pointless. In the particular situation we were in, for Master's work, there was an enormous amount at stake and it simply was not appropriate to let things pass. And often we wanted to let things pass because we were, mostly because we we just didn't have the energy and we were afraid. We were afraid, we kept hoping that if we were nice, it would stop. Swami was perfectly conscious of the fact there was no stopping till it was over. So he never entertained that thought where a lot of us tried to entertain that thought. I'll speak for myself. I mean, that thought would cross my mind. Oh, can't we just let this one go? But no, he wouldn't. He'd just step into it and then pull us all with him. It was training, too, just to be able to be strong in many ways. You know, in, when after I did, this is just a, a, an interesting fact. It's, it's, it's personal, but it's, it's principle, too. Um, after I did that whole incorporation uh, thing where... I, had, I, was the, I was the spokesperson for big meetings in which there was a lot of uh, questions and accusations. And most of the time I was the mouth. I had, uh, Nidruva was there and uh, Dallas Atkins, this other lady, as I've said before. But a lot of times I was the mouth. And afterwards, Swamiji said, 
it was really good for you because you had an inclination before this to tell people what they wanted to hear instead of just telling them the truth. And he said, you got over that. (laughs) But he was talking about it from the point of view of the ministry. It had nothing to do with politics. Because there it was. I, you know, just, they were against it and I was for it. And there was just no in-between on it. And because I was at the the, uh, prow of the ship, that's what happened. So I, I learned to understand, oh, look, they're just really mad at me, but that doesn't matter. I don't have to get them to like me. It's just the way it is. But there's a lot of there's a lot of learnings you can see in there. So see, sometimes you have to answer scathing letters if you're afraid to. And if you're perfectly comfortable in doing it, sometimes you can just say, "Bless you, my child. Let us just agree to disagree." Swami never took that stance with SRF. Never. And you just I have to I look at it as I do with everything that he did. Hmm. You know, let me try to understand why he did that. Instead of thinking, oh, he should have done this or he should have done that. I think everything I know about Ahimsa, I learned from him. So when I see him acting it out in front of me, I just presume it's another teaching rather than an example of the fact that I know better than he. How is that possible? So I, I found it very interesting. He never gave up, not to, never, not to the end. He was, but he was always perfectly loving, and, but he was, he was definite on the principles. He was not going to give up the principles. So just to be clear, if if there is a conflict between the desire to stand up against some negative energy and um, the fact that doing so might put you in an act, in a negative frame of mind, which is the higher dharma? That's a tricky one, and you're going to have to just sort that out. Sometimes you I have to act, say that. even though your energy is not completely clean, because it's the consequences of your, of your not acting are going to be worse. And then you just have to do the best you can and hope that you'll learn by doing. Actually, now I think of um, Swami in one of the lawsuits said he would, he would never have stood up for himself at all. But the fact that other people were involved, he did. So, so that, that's one of the factors yeah. there also. Though, to make that clear, it was yeah. a principle with him not to defend himself because he was here to overcome his ego, not to defend it. But, but then he had to defend all of us, basically. But, he would, but, but all of us had also made our lives with Ananda, and if we lost Ananda, we would all lose our livelihood and our way of life, and that was irresponsible. If it had just been him alone, that would have been different. But that's to say... I mean, well, that was just to say, if this had been a whole other planet in a different yuga, I mean, it's like the whole of Master's mission was being jeopardized. And it was just no question he had to do it. But yes, a lot of times one does have to decide that even if you can't do it perfectly, I've still got to do it because the, the, there's no good choice here. Everything is directional. And that's the story that uh, Swami tells in the path about Mr. Jaycott, who foiled some nefarious plot in one of the SRF churches in Los Angeles, but he did it with anger. Master said, I'm grateful for you for standing up, but it would have been better if you hadn't been done it with angry vibrations. And then eventually that anger took Mr. Jacot off the path. That's how they put it. But still, he was glad that he did it. So it was probably better to have done it. He just put himself in jeopardy and then wasn't able to recover from what he did. So it's subtle. Okay? When I was very pleased when that man came up to the room at 
convocation. I wasn't, I didn't have any personal reaction to him. I just wanted him out of there. And we were sort of starting this rather heated discussion inside that room and um, he or someone else who was one of the Ananda people brought him in there said, maybe we should go outside. I said, yes, I would love to get you out of this room. Let's go outside. <laughs> I was just completely, I was, I was, I knew exactly what I wanted. Anything that will get you out of this room will please me. Let's go outside. Yeah. It's for, I guess, a concrete example, um, something that bugs me a lot at East West is when somebody will come in and they'll want to return something and it's broken and they don't have their seat or all these just stupid things that, like, we have a very clear, reasonable return policy, like, can't you just follow it like everybody else? Come on. And it and it really annoys me, and I have a real tendency to just be hard-nosed about it and say, like, no, you can't do anything. But I'm what am I protecting? I'm protecting, you know, like $20 for the store, which out of all the store sales is, like, really pretty minuscule. Yes. So if it was a matter of the store tanking, okay, worth standing up for. If right. it's not really going to have an appreciable effect on the store, you know, there, what's going on inside me is is right. pretty bad relatively. That is Swami's statement to the to some of us colony leaders. It's presumptuous not to take yourself into account. If harsh, if a har- it's precisely if a harsh decision is needed, but it's bad for you to make that harsh decision, then make a different decision. Because it just it's not it hurts your own consciousness, and it's presumptuous not to pay attention to the fact that this is hurting my consciousness. So I would say, if you're the one and you find yourself just getting annoyed with them, you probably should just let them turn the stuff back in, you know, and just try to be more charitable about whatever it is. I mean, that seems to me like a perfect example of exactly what Swami was talking about. Annoying, but nonetheless. (laughs) All right, let's take a short break. Missing one week, no class next week, and then after that we'll be back. Um... He, Swami en, uh, emphasizes one more thing about Ahimsa here before we go on, which I find very interesting. He keeps saying um, to not wish harm to anyone, not even to inanimate objects. And I was thinking about um, some of the things that go on in our society right now. I was thinking about those bands who smash their imp- instruments and people who write graffiti or, 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 or vandalize things. You know, that like... It's just property, but there's some real um, harmful intent there, trying to dis- destroy, and it has an extremely bad vibration, a very, very bad vibration, way out of proportion to, to what it really is. And I was, I was uh, with a, a young person, like 10 or 12, and they were just doing that thing that they do, just dropping their stuff on the floor and dropping their clothes on the floor, and I was trying to express it. You have to respect everything. You can't just treat things disrespectfully. And that's the basis for cleanliness, and that's the basis for order. You know, that's the basis for putting things away and not just letting them, you know, rust about. It's, it's like you don't want to harm anything. It's not just things that, that have that sentient beings that can respond, respond back. But to allow a tool to rust is a violation of ahimsa. Yeah, or to or to carelessly forget your jacket, or allow it to be torn, or get it covered with paint, and not clean it up. 
It's, it's, it's against the principles of ahimsa. You have to respect everything, yes. I mean, be doing what I do and uh, just being in this country, I'm always asked a lot of questions about people's laptops and computers and tech uh-huh. stuff. And it's, it's really interesting for me to note that uh, most problems people face with all these things is, is also because they, they see it as their enemy. They don't, op- they sort of, they don't have that kind of relationship with their laptops. Uh-huh. It's, it, this is going to sound a little crazy, but uh-huh. <laughs> sometimes I would just go and things would work. Oh, yes, and most, it's not just me. It's with anybody. They would just take it to the technician and it would exactly. st- just start working. And it's just because that person is no longer treating the laptop with the same animosity that the owner was treating it with. And it's, it's, it's just so often that it happens to me that it's so obvious that you have to relate to your laptop and your car and things like yeah, that exactly with a right. lot of love and compassion and you have to give them the respect that they deserve. That's exactly right. I mean, there's many other laws activated, but Ahimsa is one of them. And I'm struck by the fact that Swami mentions it a couple of times in these few paragraphs, even inanimate objects. And it's not like we worship them or you know have an undue attachment to them. It's just that Everything is consciousness. And it's bad for us. It's bad for us to just carelessly come in and just drop things on the floor and then not know where they are later on and just have everything be in a state of disorder. Master used to teach the monks how to keep their rooms tidy. He gave them instructions on how to keep your room tidy. It's just, it's interesting because you also ask yourself, why am I behaving this way? I mean, it was when I was trying to teach this young boy which I was very unsuccessful at doing. But I was trying to to pick it up from some string that was interesting instead of, you ought to be better, you ought to take better care of your things, you know, just like, who cares? Just try to get them, it didn't work, but try to get them into some attunement with a different reality. uh, When Swami Chidananda of the Divine Life Society came to visit Ananda in like 1971 or 72, somewhere in there, uh, maybe it was... It might have even been 1970, because actually I don't think I was there yet. And the downtown area of Ananda was very cluttered with a lot of old junk and stuff. And he said, you know, lower astral entities love this kind of disorder. He said, if you leave it like this, you'll just attract lower astral entities here. You have to clean it up so that higher beings will want to be here. And Swami, this is a, a conversation that happens sometimes. Swami says, you know, the the overgrown forest is always where the evil witch lives. She never lives in the beautifully manicured lawns and the trees. She always lives in the unkempt forest, which is an interesting discussion when people start advocating just leaving nature to have its own way. But Swami points out that, no, the nature spirits like it when man helps to make it more beautiful and more orderly. When Swamiji was taking down some trees, uh, below Crystal Hermitage because they blocked his view. There was a hoo-ha among quite a few people. And Swami said, no, they like it. They don't mind. He was very emphatic. They don't mind. They know what we're doing here. We're making it beautiful so that we can all enjoy it more. And they don't mind. They're happy to give up their, their bodies for that. You know, they don't have the same attachment that we have. They like it. So it's, it's, it has to, all of that has to be understood that it isn't just a question of leaving things alone. It's a question of what your intention is and what it is in your heart. So um, very subtle, 
you can just really sort of, you have to play these things out for a long time. There was, we took down a big tree, we, Ananda Village, because there was a blind curve. And the only way to make that curve safe was to take that tree down. And then people were um, putting up signs of mourning where the tree had been and so on. Swami was actually quite annoyed. He said it was a perfectly right thing to take that tree down. He said, any of those people who are mourning, would they want their child to have been hit by a car going around that corner? I mean, he was just emphatic. This is not, this is not really ahimsha. This is just not having the courage to face the, the realities that we have to face and just deal with them as we have to deal with them. So it's not being hard-hearted. It's just being appropriate. It's very, and not being sentimental, but just seeing what's, what's really happening here. And this is, it's okay. And man does have a right to be on this planet and express himself. And if we do it with the right spirit, um, then nature's quite happy to have us here. It's when we do it with the wrong spirit that nature gets mad at us. Swamiji talks about how when we very first went to the seclusion retreat, he said several trees fell across the road when he first bought the land. They fell across the road and tried to keep him out. He really felt they were trying to keep him out because they'd had the land to themselves for a long time. Then after we were there for a few years and Seva was pulling her trailer out to go to Ayodhya, the tree fell to keep her in. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I, mean, I don't think Swami was being sentimental. I really think he perceived it. But a tree fell down and then she wasn't able to pour a trailer out and they had to... He said, but he felt they, were, they didn't want her to go. They liked having her there. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? I love that. <laughs> so um, now Swamiji also talks, he also talks about words, but I think that's very self-evident. You don't have to just punch somebody in the face. You can break their heart with your words. Um, now what did I read somewhere? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart, which is even worse. Um, and then Swamiji talks about the, the fruit of, of ahimsa practiced well is the quality of kindness. And uh, Jyotish, was it recently Jyotish was talking about kindness? I think one of the things that he just sent. Just talking about kindness is something that Swamiji often just emphasized so much. And, the, and it's that automatic awareness of other people's realities. If, we're, if we know that the other person is out there, we're automatically kind if we really care about their well-being. Whenever you're not kind, I mean, kindness, is, kindness isn't about courage or about principles. It's just about whether you know that somebody's there and has feelings of their own, or even that your, your backpack has feelings or your laptop has feelings. That this is, this is a part of God's creation. And when I, uh, even, you know, the laptop itself doesn't have a soul, it's not, it's, it cannot become God-realized. <laughs> it cannot consciously evolve, but it's part of the fabric of reality. It's an energy pattern. And so when you're putting out a, a bad force, that energy pattern's going to warp a little bit, and that may result in your system not working so well. Um, but he says, then he talks about the quality of kindliness. Um, there naturally appears in the heart a feeling of deep benevolence for all. It's so sweet. So you work on it from both sides. You practice, you practice kindness, and at the same time you practice harmlessness. And you practice harmlessness even when strong actions are needed. And then you begin to progress down the route that Patanjali describes for us. 
Okay, any thoughts or questions before we move on? Okay, we're just going to barely touch this one and then we'll have to let it go. The next one is truthfulness, uh, which he says, to be truthful above all in thought. There are times when it is better to resort to a kindly fiction because benevolence is the main criteria for divine truth. Truth is always beneficial. Swami doesn't really discuss this in as great a length as I wanted to bring up a few points because this is what I was saying. I was thinking about earlier when I was talking about Swami's, the criteria of Swamiji. This is a discussion that we've had a lot of times, the difference between truth and fact. And facts are certain conditions that exist, but truth is, is a higher reality than the mere facts of a situation. He uses the example of somebody's in the hospital and they just really look like they're about to die tomorrow and you've never seen them look worse. You don't just go in and say, my God, you look terrible. I mean, even if it's necessary to say something, you try to couch it in such a way that it will be a beneficial truth. Swami goes through a whole thing here about trying how to tell someone that their outfit is very unattractive on them and you try to find a way to say it nicely. But there's another, um, I think, more subtle point which is important, which is the greatest truth in the world is positive magnetism. And positive magnetism is based on a person's enthusiasm, on their confidence, on their faith in themselves and in God. And positive magnetism can switch facts around very nicely. I mean, conditions that don't seem like they're really going to come together and that all the facts speak against it, positive magnetism can just draw out of the universe something completely else. So the truth of every situation is the positive flow of energy. And if we want to speak the truth, we want to, above all, encourage the development of positive magnetism. And what happens, and this is where I've shared with you when Swami said to me once that he thought that I was often, not often, but sometimes negative because I was so, in his words, are factual. I was so determined sometimes to straighten out the details of the situation when I thought people didn't see it like I saw it. But what that would do is that would just take the magnetism out of the situation. So I thought I was being truthful when actually I wasn't following truth because I was draining the energy. Or you're draining someone's enthusiasm. Someone's very enthusiastic about a project, and I saw Swami do this many, many times. Somebody very enthusiastic about a project that self-evidently was never going to succeed, and yet he would just feed them positive reasons and let them go out and try it. Because the experience of putting out that positive energy, even if they didn't get the result that they thought they, that they had hoped to get. Nonetheless, the, it was an increase of positive magnetism to let them try than to thwart them with the facts. You don't know anything about business. Your pricing is all off. You know, you're really going to need somebody on the phone and nobody wants to get on the phone, which could all have been true. But where would that have left you? It would have left somebody who, had a, who was willing to put out energy and have an experience and try to do something just sitting there, not doing it. And I did that on many occasions. I thwarted things because somehow I thought that if we just got our facts straight, but I was thinking only about what was in my head. This is what I realized this morning when I was trying to think this out. I was so involved in my ideas and what I perceived that I wasn't paying attention to what was actually going on around me. I mean, everything 
comes back to egoic preoccupation. You know, I was more concerned about me than I was in touch with the reality around me. And and the, the most amazing case of this was, as I've expressed to you, when we were in the Redwood City trial for however many weeks we're in that trial, the jury trial that went so badly against us and everything was a disaster in that. And Swamiji was staying in our house and every morning about 10 of us would gather at the breakfast table and pretty much every morning Swami would try to tell us that things were going to go better that day. That he thought that, you know, and this was how he put it, juror number three is looking a little more positive, don't you think? And everyone at the table, well, I I will have to say, I think everyone at the table would say, oh, Swami, no, I don't think so. We felt this deep obligation to make sure that no positive energy got started. You know, and his facts were all wrong, mostly. And he knew it, too. He's not stupid. just didn't cross my mind that this man isn't stupid. He knows more than we do about this. But every day he would try to get a little positive energy going, and, and we would just kill that with the facts. And our facts were correct. But he had a greater truth than we did. And it wasn't literally until the last breakfast that it, I finally, I mean, I finally got clear enough to ask the obvious question. He knows that everything's going against us. Why does he keep saying this? Because he's trying to get a little positive magnetism going. And, after, and that morning when he said, juror number three is looking positive, I said, yes, sir, I definitely think so. I agreed with him completely. You know, pretty much everyone at the table thought I just lost my marbles. You know, what did, who slipped something into her coffee? But I finally got it. And uh, weeks, months, maybe even a year later, I said, I repeated all this to Swamiji. And I said, you know, I I can't believe it took me so many weeks to see what you were actually doing. Yes, he said. I said, but this is a very fine line because, and this this goes back to Ahimsa. Because I see people trying to create positive energy when their desire to create positive energy is merely a fear of facing the reality of the negative energy. Cowardice, in other words. Oh, SRF really does mean us well. You know, if we just go and just are nice to them, you know, we, we really shouldn't take the stand. And it, it wasn't really, um, you know, uh, they're being nicer now. I saw this letter and it, it, that, it, was, it sounded a lot like what Swami was doing but the intention behind it was completely different. And I said, sir, this is the fine line where you, you, were, you were completely aware of every level of reality and then had chosen where you wanted to come in. I said, many times people are afraid of many of those levels of reality, and so they choose the one that's the most comfortable for them. I said, it's a very fine line, isn't it? Yes. He said, just like that, yes. Very tricky. You were saying it's a positive magnetism that's the highest truth, and magnetism takes energy, and you can even just see when you're acting it out, that other version has no energy to it at all. It's all just avoiding putting out energy. Um, it can. Sometimes, though, it can be quite fierce. It can be quite, we mustn't do it this way. We have to do it that way. But yes, at other times, it's like just what he was saying earlier. Oh, Sancho didn't fight the Moors because he was more tolerant. And Swami says, tolerance or indifference is the answer that Swami has. Just didn't have the energy to fight for the righteous cause. So he covered it over 
with that. You know, so, but, but I said to Swamiji too, just this, you know, affirming a reality that is not entirely supported by the facts, that was also what I was talking about, because that's when he, that was in, it was in that conversation that he told me that I was negative because I was so factual. And then I said, but there's this very fine line where I see people just dreaming. They don't have the energy. They don't really know what it takes. They just try to affirm. Oh, I'm going to be wealthy. This is going to work. I'm going to be a great healer. I'm going to have this. The relationship is going to come. But they're, they're, not, they're not generating any magnetism to make it happen. They're just affirming something and, and blinding themselves to the facts. And that's when he said, oh, yes, it's very tricky. You have to really be careful, he said. You have to really know what you're doing. Because many times Swamiji has and, and did say things that were not entirely factual. And it just, but he knew what he was doing. He was, he was pushing, but that was like, he would make predictions. This book is going to be a bestseller. 200 people are going to come to Spiritual Renewal Week this year. That was the famous one. Every year, all through the 70s. I think 200 people will come to Spiritual Renewal Week this year. We need to be ready, you know, because 200 people are coming. And that would be the usual 30, 31, 32 and when I was talking to him once, he just said to me flat out, he said, yes, but if I didn't say 200, we wouldn't even have 30. Because everybody's energy was low and, and unimaginative and, and totally not tuned in. I, I've been going through this file. I finally got back to it for this book that I am hoping to write. I am not writing it yet, but I'm looking through files. This it, it, amazing thing happened it must have happened around 1980, 79, 80. I don't have an exact date on it. This was the cycle. I had written this little brochure that was called What is Ananda? And it has a picture of the Pubble, what was the Pubble building, which is the Hansa Temple now, and this little thing, goats going across it. And it's this little pamphlet, and it says, Ananda is a community of so many acres, and we do this, and we do that. And it had some nice stuff in it. It was a nice little thing. We used it for eight or nine years or something like that. And then everyone, it was outdated. The facts were outdated, so he wanted me to write another one. So I wrote another one, and I wrote essentially the same thing, only a little more and a little better. He took that brochure, he looked at it, and <laughs> as was his wont in those days, he threw it away. And uh, uh, with my writing, he threw it away, and he wrote a completely, completely 100% other, I mean like from another planet uh, document. And it started with um, the time that he and a group of people were going skiing and the bald tires and the car skidded into the bus and his car was ruined and he was perfectly cheerful. Why should you care? And then he talked about various miraculous things that happened and how Vijay fell 60 feet out of the tree and was just barely sprained his ankle and Santos drove over the hill and his car was stopped by a little tiny bush and you know, just... And then lots of lots and lots of stories like that. And after about page three or four, he mentions that we have 450 acres and so on like this. And then he goes back to all of this. And it was absolutely a fabulous brochure. Um, I was completely, you know, when I read his, it was like so different. He said, well, you did a good job of doing what you were doing. But when I meditated on it, Swamiji said, I saw that something completely else was needed. He used to say that I always helped him by showing him what he didn't want. <laughs> he would try hard to keep me alive, you know. 
Okay, but what happened was, and I say weirdly, that uh, way of describing Ananda in terms of our, our marvelous attitudes and our miraculous occurrences and our devotion to God and all of these things, nobody, we just couldn't handle it. Nobody could handle it. We just couldn't. And so they had really, they, I don't even remember the details of who the they are, but everyone had really liked mine and they just didn't know what to do with his. We just didn't know what to do with it. We just kind of looked at it. We walked around it. We felt uh, we didn't have the power to declare it. He had the power to declare it. He knew what Ananda was. I mean, but this was at a time when Ananda didn't look like that. But he was just telling the truth of everything that had happened. But we just did not have the power to declare that reality of Ananda. We wanted to say, we have 450 acres and we have a school for children. We have goats and we have a garden like that. I read it now and among the many things I can see is like, wow, he, he knew so powerfully what we were doing and we were just, we were so far behind him. But for approximately 10 or 12 years, there was no brochure that said, what is Ananda? Because we couldn't print mine and nobody could print his. And we just sat there in this impasse. And every so often, I think by then I must have come here because there were certain things in that that told me the timing was, no, no, I didn't move here till 86. So it was probably like eight or nine years there. And people would say, because it was still my job to write these things, why don't we have this brochure? Well, I said, here's why we don't. I must have planned to print it because I, I have marks on mine with pictures of what I, how I would illustrate it. But it was so... Like, now, what was the point of that? That was the point of his positive magnetism. And he was so powerful in that at that time, but the, we couldn't, we, we just couldn't go where he was going. And he could assert it. And I don't even, the facts were not even difficult, but the facts of, of God taking care of us and our right attitude and who we were, it's like, it's finding happiness, which we all just put out without a slight hesitation, but he put it out in... 1978, you know, with just as much force. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like we have a lot to learn. And we have to, we're just going to have to go step by step, and each one of us in our own uh, universe. I mean, we're, we're pretty good. I mean, look at us. We're sitting in this building. We're, we're getting pretty good at it. And when, when, we, when we met with the uh, realtor about this building, we had very little money. And I mean, I've told you all that. We, we got the four or five people in our congregation who, who appeared to have something substantial. Jim Gerber lived here at the time, and he actually was a very well-to-do businessman and an entrepreneur. So he, we had him come when we met the realtor. And um, Kamala had some notable job as a software engineer, and so she came. And Santoshi was our realtor, and they all came in business suits, and Santoshi carried a little briefcase, you know. Like this, it was all just a positive affirmation. But we knew we could do it. There were, there were very few facts to support it. But, you know, we're, we were learning. And we've, we've gotten pretty good at just saying we can and we will now. Yes. But there's still not 200 people for spiritual renewal. <laughs> Guess. <laughs> we bought the community. That was uh, a, yeah. a dramatic one. I'm sitting in a meeting with four or five people. I'm the accountant. And they start spinning this tale, which isn't true. And I'm about to say, kids, we don't have the money. 
And in the back of my mind, it says, do not get in the way of this just because you can. Yeah. And I shut my mouth, didn't say another word. Yeah. And we bought the community. Well, that was the famous meeting when we just kept adding up the numbers, and they did not add up. And we were at the point where if we, if we didn't succeed at that point, we would forfeit $100,000. So that was, I mean, it was really, it was a big moment. We would forfeit $100,000 if we failed after that point. We did not have it. We were about 200,000 200, short or something of whatever it was. And <laughs> we uh, had all the numbers on the wall. And so we famously, I said, okay, why don't we all just back up a little bit? We all backed up. And most of us wore glasses. Why don't we just take off our glasses? Now the numbers look really different, don't they? <laughs> because it, was, it wasn't, it, the facts didn't support it, but the energy supported it. And then, because he was there, and then we all put our hands together, and we said, if we go down, we all go down together. And we did a, a, one of those om swaha kind of gestures. And that Sunday, a man in our congregation, who was just a sort of small man in our congregation, he was literally physically small, but he was just a small person. Oh, he said, I have two properties in San Jose. I own two houses in San Jose. I think I'll, I could just sell those, and I could put all the money into the community, $250,000. Out of nowhere. I mean, nobody had any idea that he had that kind of asset, and nobody thought he would ever do something like that. But you could feel it. And you learn to feel it, and you know. All right. Marilyn? The, the energy you're talking about, um, it's sometimes, I think, if we could just say... Maybe it's possible. Let's just see what happens. Well, it's a, it's a very fine line because I've seen people affirm when there's no magnetism for the affirmation. Well, well yeah, but, but you... No, it's, it's a very fine line, Marilyn. There's no... Yes, you have to... You have to that's just what Swami said. You, you have to be in right relationship to the magnetism, but when you are, you can go way, way far out. I, well, I, when I worked with people who had developmental disabilities, some of them wanted to go on trips, places like down to Disneyland, and they uh-huh. wanted to go by themselves. Uh-huh. And, and you know, I mean, I just got carried away with their enthusiasm, and some of them actually succeeded. You know, I did what I could to help them, and I made sure they weren't going to lose the place they were living and all of that, you know. But, but really, it's very possible when people... It's very possible, and, and it's very possible... Yes. Yeah, it's exactly right. And this, this, is a, this is a truth, and it has to be acted out responsibly and maturely, but it's a magnificent truth. Yeah. And we have to just move step by step toward it. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely the best. That's how we got the church. That's how we got the church. That's how we, the community was bought for us right. also. Because the week before this church came on the market... Santoshi called me and said, let's get our groups together, just like we did for the community, and buy a church. Uh-huh. And so we got our groups together, uh-huh. and the next week this church came on the market. We did not have the money, but we had the feeling we could, and yeah, we, we went just, forward with yeah, it. Yeah, we had the feeling that we could, and Swami, it's just, it's just, you learn, and you learn by fizzling. You fizzle. I mean, I, I, it, was a, it was a microscopic project that I was doing, which was also a fundraising project you know, 40 years ago, and it went really, really badly. And that was the one where Swami said, ah, yes, when your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. Because I, 
I muddled it up. And I was affirming and I wasn't paying attention to the facts. I mean, at that point, the facts were really important. It's all very... It's not linear. It's about just knowing. And you, you, you learn by doing. The only way. So, uh, the, uh, yes, I think that's it. Okay? Anything else? That was fun. So we got through two of the uh, two stanzas, no, two of the uh, yamas. Yeah, so yeah, so we're now, we'll start with non-covetousness. So we got through, we did um, 229 and 230. 